I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. And we are a Bible-believing church. Every time you come to this church, our aim is to teach and to preach the Word of God. We want to have you create a short leash to the Scriptures, meaning that it's not much of a transformative sermon to start out with a verse and then just wax philosophical for the rest of the sermon. Who cares about narratives and stories and all kinds of illustrations and jokes in a sermon? Let's get to the Word. Let's make it come alive. Let's do it together. So my responsibility is to be bathed in prayer and the study of the Word all week, to deliver it to you with humility, with hope, with expectation. Your responsibility actually is to receive it with discernment, with prayerfulness, asking the question, God, is this message for me? Are you speaking to me personally, not my spouse that I'm hoping you're talking to, not my kids, not the neighbor? Are you speaking to me? So let's evaluate that and let's see what God's word has for us. There is a Honda commercial years ago I saw this. I was really amazed. It's a two-minute commercial, two-minute and one second. It's called COG. And uh, the camera follows this large room, the, the parts that keep colliding with each other around this large room. And each part triggers a motion in the next part. And we're going to approach our passage today in a very similar way. We're going to abandon an outline. You don't see one in your, in your sermon bulletin or in your church bulletin. Instead, we're going to follow the event as it, as it unfolds, one incredible collision at a time. The sermon's called Surrender. So let's get in our Bibles. It's Luke chapter 22. Let's all be in there together. If, you're, if your Bible is an app on your phone, great. Open it up. I preach out of the English Standard Version. It's a word-for-word translation, highly readable. I would offer it, suggest it to you as well. Here's what we get into verse 39. Luke 22, verse 39. And he came out and went, he is Jesus, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So we follow Jesus as he leads his disciples. They had just been in the upper room. They're in this home. Nobody really truly knows where that home was. It's somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. They were up there and they were celebrating a meal together. A lot of things happened in that upper room. A lot of chapters of John devoted to the teaching of Jesus, the encouragement of Jesus in that upper room. They leave They sang a hymn. They leave the upper room. They walk through Jerusalem. They go out the gate. They go down the ravine, crossing the Kidron Brook. They snakes its way through the Kidron Valley, up the other slope to the Mount of Olives. It's a two and a half mile ridge. It's 300 miles east, northeast of the Temple Mount. And there on the Mount of Olives, Olives, and this is his custom. He did this all week. During the Passion Week, every night he went out and spent the night on the Mount of Olives, likely, probably, to a garden called Gethsemane. Now, tradition holds that the Garden of Gethsemane was owned by the mother of Mark, the gospel writer. Whether that's true or not, we may never know. 
But he's at Gethsemane, and the word Gethsemane itself, this is going to bring out now a lot of what you're about to study in this passage. It means press of oils. You can bring that a little shorter and reverse it, oil press, but it technically means press of oil, oils. And it's because olives, which grew on olive trees all along that slope, would be shaken from the trees, put into baskets, carried down the slopes to the presses to produce the olive oil. Now, do you know what olive oil was used for? A lot of uses, actually. It's a very valuable commodity. It was used in ancient cosmetics. It was used for cooking oil, that you knew. It was used for fuel for lamps, had a very high combustion point. It was used for medicine, but importantly, it was used as a preparation for sacrificial offerings. So producing olive oil, well, it involves several stages. And this, by the way, is now going to bring in exactly what is happening, precisely what is happening in the Son of God in Gethsemane. Because to produce olive oil, you often put it into a press that has a round stone that has a pole through it. And hooked to the pole is often a donkey, if not a donkey, two men will push that pole, or if it's a donkey, pull that pole around and around a very tight circle while that stone crushes the olives, seeds and all. It crushes them into a pulp. And when it's crushed enough, the pulp is gathered by hand, put into these baskets that are very compressible. They're very soft baskets, almost cloth-like baskets, and they have a round hole cut in the middle. And the pulp is put into these, and they're taken over to a vertical press, and they're stacked one on top of another, all filled with the pulp of the olives. And all of a sudden, that vertical press with a wooden handle is turned, usually an iron handle, is turned around and around like a corkscrew coming down and pressing those baskets and squeezing the oil out down into waiting containers. The very first time that it is pressed, it is called extra virgin olive oil. That is given to the Lord. That is for the Lord. But then it's pressed again. And now you're using it for cosmetics. Now you're using it for cooking. And then it's pressed a third time. And the third time, the, the least purity, it's now used for the oil for lamps. Now both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus prayed three times, three different times at Gethsemane. Now, now how many times do they press the olives? Three how many times does Jesus leave his disciples and go to pray? Three. There is no accident with this. This is precise biblical language. Three times he is crushed spiritually. He is pressed so that his spirit brings forth a lesson for us. Let's find out what that lesson is. Verse 39. Let's go on a little bit. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, and here's his prayer, Father, if you are willing, if only we could learn to pray like this in the midst of our trouble. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
You know, the Garden of Gethsemane offers one of the most pure glimpses into the humanity of Jesus Christ. Look what it says again in, those, in that verse. He knelt down and prayed. The standard posture of the Jewish people when they prayed was standing, not kneeling. But bowed down under the weight of this vertical crushing, for that's what it is, it's coming from his father, bowing down on Jesus, bending down on Jesus, he bows down, he kneels. Matthew says he falls on his face. Now I want you to see this. Now I want you to look at me for just a moment. This is utterly critical that you get this. Can you imagine the Son of God, Jesus Christ, laying flat out on his face, having been bent down under the pressure of what is to come? Can I ask you when the last time is that you've been in a trial and in trouble so weighty, so burdensome, that, has, that just standing won't suffice, your soul cannot cope with the pressure standing. But kneeling is not even enough. It takes you to your face. When's the last time you went to your face in prayer, unable to stand? See, this is what's happening to Jesus. Mark chapter 11, verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So they normally stand, but not the Son of God. He is lying on his face, according to Matthew, Luke says he kneeled. You know what I think happened? It's a little bit of conjecture. I think he began by praying. And I think the pressure began to descend on him and it dropped him to his knees. But I don't even think his knees could support his body at that point. It dropped him to his face. The weight of sorrow, you may know this, the difficulty of a trial can be so intense that it bows you down under its weight. But never, now listen, never has anyone borne the weight of a trial or trouble like that which Jesus was bearing. And Luke tells us what this weight and that trouble and that difficulty was. Look what he prays. Father, remove this cup from me. You know, in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, also the New Testament, in fact, in that upper room, you can see that a cup is, also, is, is often a symbol of blessing. It could be a symbol of cursing. It could be a symbol for a blessing or a cursing that goes towards a person, a nation, or even a family. But this cup, what was this cup that Jesus is praying would be removed if it is his father's will. Well, let me walk you through what that was. It's a cup filled with mixed wine, more than one ingredient, and there's a lot of ingredients. Certainly, the sorrow that loomed ahead of him, the abandonment of his friends, that's certainly in that cup. His disciples would flee, all but John, who would stay at a distance. The mixed wine in that awful cup already had moved him to weep over his own people who had been and are and will reject him. He had witnessed crucifixions, by the way, when he was younger. There was a sedition, there was a revolt, 
in a town not far from Galilee, not far from where Jesus was. It was in Galilee, not far from Nazareth, where they crucified along the road to put it down. The Romans crucified over 2,000 people, lining them every 30 feet along the edge of that dusty road. That was when Jesus was a little boy. He had seen crucifixion. He knew the pain. He knew the agony that he would suffer to death. Crucifixion was always to the death. But even more agonizing was that he knew he was going to pay the terrible wages of sin, which was death. He would pay that wage not for himself. He was the sinless one. He was the holy one. He was never one who had sinned. He would pay that wage for every sinner who would ever turn to him in faith. That may be you, that is me, whoever would turn to him in faith, whenever that might be, 2,030 years after the fact, or 4,000 years if we're still here. He would taste death. He would pay that wage for every single sinner that turned to him. But worse, now listen, what's in the cup, but worse In dying as our substitute in our place, he, the Holy One, would actually become sin for us. Not only tasting it, not only paying the wage of death, the Bible says he would become sin for us. Not just bear our sin, but become sin for us. Driven outside the camp, driven outside the city of Jerusalem, just like the scapegoat was in the Old Testament, driven out to die. Utterly alone. And the terrible result of becoming sin for us would be that the Father, the Heavenly Father's just wrath towards sin. Sin has got to be punished. If sin is not punished, God cannot be holy. It will always be punished. But he was driven out. He became sin. He stepped into our place. He became our substitute so that the heavenly Father's wrath would pour out on him, fully invested every single holy ounce of it upon his son. Like the older brother standing in place of the guilty younger one, taking what should have been his punishment, but telling his father, Take, let me have the punishment for my brother. This is what Jesus did as our substitute. And the incredible moment that Jesus knew was about to come, when the father's face turned from divine favor to divine displeasure, and he forsook his only begotten son. The sin bearer. That's what's in the cup. That's why he's praying, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. It is too much. This is fear. There are some who want to sanitize and scrub this to be devoid of raw, utter emotion, but it cannot be. And you'll see that in a moment. Nevertheless, he prays, he goes on to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Now listen, these are not the words of helplessness. They're not the feeble whisper of defeated submission. They're not even those words of an utterly frustrated person who gives up hope. That's not what he's praying. That's not what's behind these words. These are the glorious 
beautiful words of surrender and perfect obedience and beautiful trust. It is the voice of perfect trust that submits to a love that he knows will never, ever let him go. And it is one of our main lessons that we're going to learn in this passage, a main lesson that we've got to learn today. Here it is. Surrender isn't something learned by theology alone. It is learned through the experience of suffering. You do not learn surrender in the classroom. You learn surrender in the life and when life is painful. It is experiencing God's touch of grace in the midst of trouble and trial and difficulty. It's the acquisition, the acquiring of this strength in the posture of honest, soul-bearing prayer. D.L. Moody once said, spread out your petition, your prayer before God, and then say, thy will, not mine, be done. The sweetest lesson, Moody wrote, that I have learned in God's school is to let the Lord choose for me. So friends, when we are troubled, when we're in a trial, when we are in a difficulty that is too great for us, we go to prayer, but not always, listen, not always or even usually with the hope of convincing God to relent or change the outcome. That's not why we go to prayer. That's why we go to prayer before we surrender. But when surrender comes into our hearts, you go to prayer in trust, yielded to his will. Now, I want to bring something out for you. Three times Jesus prayed that the cup might pass from him, and each time he ended, your will be done. You may remember another person who prayed three times that God would take something away. It was the Apostle Paul. He prayed this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, God was giving him such revelation that the the bent towards pride was very real. God gave me, Paul writes, a thorn in the flesh. It was a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, I've often thought that this three times is a good guide for us when we're in a terrible trial. When you're in a trial, you're in a trouble, spread out your painful petition to God. Do it again if he doesn't answer, if he doesn't take it away, and then do it again. If it still is there, then know that God has chosen to prove his grace to be sufficient for you. Surrender. Yield. Submit. And you know, sometimes that grace that is always so sufficient comes to us in ways that could be incredibly surprising. Look what happens. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Now you might have a little footnote in your Bible right here explaining that some early manuscripts do not have these two verses. 
Yet this would relate to what happened in another severe testing of Jesus. You might remember in the wilderness, right after his temptation, then the devil left him and behold, Matthew 4 wrote, angels came and were ministering to him. They're plural angels ministering to Christ. Now we've got a single angel according to Luke. You might remember that great prophet Daniel who was praying and presenting his plea before the Lord And while I was speaking in prayer, he wrote, the angel Gabriel came to me in swift flight. Well, certainly no angel ever flew as swiftly as the one who was given the honor to minister to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Christian, I want you to know something. Please write this into your heart. Put this as an anchor in your mind. Let Let me even back up and widen this just a moment. If you've not yet experienced a soul-crushing trial in your life, you're going to. Because I believe you're either in a trial right now, you're in a testing of your faith, you're in sorrow, you're in trouble, or you've probably recently come out of it, but you might want to know you're eventually going to move back into one. It's the way we grow. You do not surrender and yield any other way. But this is what I want you to put in your mind. When that trial comes, when that trouble arrives in your heart and it begins to bow you down, maybe even all the way to your face because no other posture can represent a soul that is being crushed to this extent. When that is coming, know that God is always ahead of it. He's always ahead of your trial. He is always ahead of your, tr- your trouble. He never lags behind. He never says, you know what? I've been pretty busy, a little bit preoccupied. I better hurry up because Tim's faith is about to give up. He's never done that. Jesus sees the cup that he is about to drink on the cross And God, even now, begins to strengthen him for it. He's ahead. And what we must learn is this. When God sends help to us, it is often not to take the trouble away, but because the trouble is about to intensify. Did you hear that? When God sends help, it is not usually to bring us out of the trial. It is because what's coming You cannot bear it alone. Jesus was on his knees. He is locked into spiritual battle. He would emerge in victory. There is a hint. Now, this is really, I think, insightful. There is a hint in Matthew's gospel that shows us exactly what the temptation was that Jesus was battling. This is certainly spiritual warfare. What is the temptation? Matthew says this, My father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Do you know what he's praying? If there's any other way, God, if there is any other way than drinking this cup to save humanity, then take this away. That's a temptation we always have. When you're in a trial, You and I always try to find the fastest way out. Or how do you avoid the trial? You see the storm clouds of trouble come. You already begin praying, God, take it away. Don't let me come into that. Don't let that come into me. Help me get around it, circumvent it, get through it fast. But this 
is a temptation that we must resist. Because, friends, that trial that God allows in your life is exactly, precisely, perfectly customized to do, a, do what he wants, him, wants your heart to do. That trial is meant for a purpose. And without it, you will not know Christ as deeply as you could with it. The Father sent the Son to the cross, but he did not force Jesus to go. There is not the Paul Young accusation of heavenly father abuse here. Rather, this is the plan agreed to by the triune God before the universe was created. Did you know that the cross was in God's mind and God brought all the events to it before he even created? He, it was in his mind before he created the universe. He knew exactly the fall of humankind into sin. He knew the only redemptive solution. He already embraced it and agreed to it. There is no there is rather in the prayer of Jesus the, 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 the fearful prayer of one asking. This is fear. Don't scrub Jesus free of human emotions. This is fear. And he's praying, God, Father, if there's any other way to save humanity other than the cross, other than your wrath, other than turning away from me and divine pleasure, other than becoming sin, if there's any other way, what can it happen? And while we cannot know for certain, maybe, might it be, the angel that was ministering to the Son of God, maybe it was the words of God. They were messengers, by the way. They did not speak on their own. They spoke the message from, the, from God. May it have been the Father's words to the Son, Son, there is no other way. And I will be with you. And that grave will not hold you. And I will raise you back to life. And my favor will be upon you again. And the end result will be we will have our people home. But now it's going to intensify, it's going to get worse. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. You know, Celsus, centuries ago, claimed. Now listen to this. He claimed, this is a long, long time ago. He claimed that the struggle of Jesus was actually an argument against Christianity. For how can one who is divine, and I'm quoting him, mourn and lament and pray to escape the fear of death? Don't you just want to punch Celsus in the face? Agony means extreme mental and emotional anguish, sorrow, and pain. Earnestly, more earnestly. Earnestly is a word that means to stretch. It means to be under severe strain, feeling that you might break. Luke is not being dramatic. This is what's happening. Divinely inspired, he writes. This is what's happening in the soul inside Jesus. 
and through the grace of the angelic visit that had come and gone, but still the struggle was intensifying. It got so bad. Look what it writes. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, there's times that pastors, and you know this, preachers will exaggerate. That's not what Luke is doing. He is a doctor. He is a physician. It suggests a medical condition where capillaries that feed the sweat glands actually rupture under intense emotional distress. It causes the blood to then get into the sweat pores and find there its exit. Leonardo da Vinci once described a soldier who sweated blood before battle. It's been documented that sailors in the midst of horrific storms have sweated blood. Criminals before their execution have sweated blood. Even the, the, a nun whose village was about to be overrun, she knew the impeccable things that were going to be happening to her. Or not impeccable, the detestable things that were going to be happening to her. She was sweating blood. So here we've got Jesus, the Son of God, bowed under by fear, locked in spiritual battle, which is, which is the world that operates at the bottom of all trials and troubles. Listen, what that means is this. In every trial and in every trouble that you and I face, it is a spiritual battle at the root. You might have a medical condition. Let me tell you, it's a spiritual battle at the root. You might be in great financial problems, but there's a spiritual battle at the root. You might be in a marriage that you might not, that might not survive. I'm going to tell you what's at the root of this is a spiritual battle. That's where victory lies, but you got to get there. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. This is what Jesus is doing. He is in battle, but he would emerge the victor strengthened by grace. And we get to see what it looks like, verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Now, I want you to take note of that. They weren't sleeping because it was late. They weren't sleep because they had a busy week or drank too much wine. There's all of these accusations that have been laid at the feet of why they've been sleeping. It just says plainly, Luke says, they're sleeping because their hearts are so full of sorrow. You understand this probably. Sleep is often a means of escape. But while they slept, Jesus endured with a surrendered heart. They're sleeping, but the Son of God, who is locked in battle, the one about to drink the cup, he is becoming victorious. Why? Because he submitted and surrendered his heart. Not my will, but yours. Now, can you say that in a trial? Can you say that in that medical condition, that failing marriage, that financial burden? Can you say, not my will, but yours? Well, you cannot say that in your flesh. You need the grace of God, and he will bring that in very surprising ways. But the disciples needed to learn one more lesson in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we need to learn it too. He says, why are you sleeping Rise and pray 
that you may not enter into temptation. I think I would really want us to contemplate this question that I'm about to ask you. I need to ask myself this question too. Christian, are you truly and profoundly and soberly aware that you are in a constant spiritual battle? Now, I think I know the answer for most of us. And the answer, if we're just utterly, completely honest, is we're really not aware of it. That argument that you're having with your children, the argument your children are having with each other, the argument that you're having with your spouse, the envy that you're having for your coworker who just bought a new car and makes the same as you, the jealousy you have towards that supermodel-looking woman, that angst that you have because you cannot get promotions, that frustration that you feel because nothing ever seems to come your way that is good, all of that is at its root a spiritual battle. Your heart is in motion, and there is a very vertical issue going on between you and God. Are you aware that you are perpetually in a constant spiritual battle? And it's a battle you cannot win unless you learn to become one who lives on your knees in prayer. Are you alert on guard even now? Because even now I'm telling you that there are distractions that are occurring even as I'm speaking. And those distractions aren't always external to you. Sometimes they're in your mind and you've allowed your mind to camp on something that happened earlier and you've not even listened to the word of God for the last 10 minutes. Are you on alert, on guard now for how the enemy is plotting to destroy your faith? You do know that, right? That the enemy doesn't just want to make a little trouble for you. Your enemy wants to devour you. He wants to prove your faith a failure. That is precisely what he did to Job, or he tried to do to Job. It's exactly what he wants to do to you, and it's exactly what he wants to do to me. And if he can get you to get stuck in a perpetual, habitual sin, and you lose your confidence that the power of God is greater in you than the power that is in the world, if you forget that, you're doomed, and you are locked into the shackles of an addiction. See, that's what he wants for you. And if he wants to convince you, he does want to convince you that, you know what, you've reached the peak of your marriage. It's not going to get any better than this. So you know what, find diversions, even if your spouse doesn't know. Jesus had warned Peter that the devil was wanting to sift him, attack him, just hours before this, maybe even just minutes before this, and yet Peter fell asleep when he should have been praying. Matthew's gospel, very interesting, records Jesus coming back to the sleeping disciples and speaking specifically to Peter. He says, stay awake and pray, Peter, so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He calls Peter out. 
Peter, I told you, the devil wants to destroy your faith. And it's coming. It's going to happen. I've seen it. I've warned you about it. But you still are on your ground sleeping. That's a lethargic faith. He says, get up and pray. Come to the throne of your heavenly Father. Let him strengthen you in the midst of your trouble. And come more than once and watch how he sends his grace. For the form of it will often be unanticipated and very surprising. But send it, God will. He will give it to you. And when he does, you surrender and you submit and you trust. Because it's exactly what Jesus learned in the garden. In fact, Hebrews brings it out. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Do you think your life is going to be any different than the life of Jesus? Are you in your own garden of Gethsemane? Do you have a trial and a tribulation and a sorrow that is pressing you down? Well, if not, there's undoubtedly going to come a time when you will be, and it will be a time of crushing. It will be squeezing. It will be unrelenting pressure on your heart, and it is customized precisely in God's wisdom for you to teach you, to teach me, to get to the place where you finally can surrender and submit and yield, just like Jesus the Son There is a point in the middle of that garden, if you've been there, you know this, where people can no longer come and help. They have nothing to help you in the center of the garden. That's why he left them a stone's throw away. This was a trouble that only the Father could help him with. And there will be a point in your trouble and a point in your trial where nobody's kind words can penetrate your sorrow. And nobody's presence can seem to take the cloud away. It will be only God himself that will be able to do it. And he will send his help for you. And it will always be ahead of the game. And it will be a moment when you are at the crux. Will you surrender in that moment? Will you yield to him? Will you trust him? Or will you rise up in your own strength and go your own way? Your Gethsemane, just like mine, is meant to help us surrender. Amen? Let's pray.